If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We are becoming more and more aware of the importance of culture, language, history and identity in determining our beliefs and opinions. At the same time, most remain convinced that their own views and opinions are true. In exploring the possibility of objective truth, we are today joined by the founder of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer, author of Closure, Hilary Lawson, and professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Jennifer Rappner-Rosenhagen. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll hand you over to our host for this debate, Mary Jane Rubenstein. Good evening and welcome to our debate on nothing but the truth. Should we conclude that all forms of relativism are a mistake? and insist on the importance and need to identify the true version of events and the correctness of our own outlook. Alternatively, are some beliefs such as morality and politics contextual while science remains objective? Or are all views essentially perspectival, in which case do we have to give up on the very possibility that we can be ultimately right about anything? We've got three brilliant speakers here to illuminate the nature of truth as the evening gathers. And these are first Michael Shermer, who is a science writer, founder of the Skeptic Society, editor in chief of the magazine Skeptic, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. Hilary Lawson is a post-postmodern philosopher and renowned critic of philosophical realism, who's best known for his theory of closure, which puts forward a non-realist metaphysics. And finally, Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen is professor of history at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, and is known for her work on Nietzsche and the transatlantic flow of intellectual movements. Her books include American Nietzsche and The Ideas That Made America, which was published in 2019. So first, we're going to start with Michael. And Michael, I am going to ask you the concise yet tricky question. Um, are all forms of relativism a mistake? And you'll have three minutes. Are all forms of relativism a mistake? Go for it. Yes, in general, I would say so, because the word has become so loaded with the idea of subjective truths and lived realities as as valid as objective truths 
or external truths that can be verified by other people. So let me just spend my time distinguishing between those kinds of truths. If we ask, what is truth anyway? Well, depends what you're talking about. If I say, I think dark chocolate is better than milk chocolate, and you say, no, no, I think milk chocolate's better than dark chocolate. Well, there's no experiment we're going to run and determine who has the right answer. These are just internal subjective preferences or uh, or subjective feelings or emotions we have about a particular, in this case, food product. Or if I say, I think the greatest rock song of all time is Stairway to Heaven, which I happen to think is the greatest rock song of all time, but maybe you disagree with me and you say, no, no, it's whatever, Freebird or something like this. There's no uh, experiment we're going to run uh, to determine the truth. These are internal truths. And and from there, we can kind of build out to like, well, if I say I'm in favor of a progressive tax, and you say, well, I'm in favor of a flat tax, and somebody else says I'm in favor of a regressive tax. Uh, again, that's not the kind of objective empirical truth that science can determine. That's what democracy is about, elections are about, and, and the party in power is going to be the one that you know, imposes that particular tax preference, something like that. But on the other hand, if I say, well, um, the earth is about 4.6 billion years old, and the young earth creationist says, no, no, I think it's about 10,000 years old. Uh, the truth is not determined by, you know, adding them up and dividing by two or, you know, your, your lived experience of a 10,000 year old earth is, is equivalent to mine based on geological evidence that it's 4.6 billion years. One of those is just wrong. And it's the young earth creationists. They're just wrong about this. And it's not like um, the fact that geologists don't agree exactly, you know, 4.56, 4.57, you know, there's error bars, but they agree largely within that. So here I define truth as a claim for which the evidence is so substantial, it would be unreasonable to withhold our provisional assent. So provisional is the key. It's a small T. There are no proofs in science, like in mathematics or capital T truths, like in religion. Uh, we have to always have to keep an open mind, but on the other hand, we don't have to keep running experiments about apples falling down uh, because uh, it's provisionally true that gravity uh, exists. Now, how do you go from subjective truths to objective truths? Well, if I say, for example, meditation works for me, it makes me feel better, my headache goes away, my stress levels go down and so on. That's a subjective truth. But people that meditate, uh, many of my friends, for example, claim, no, no, it's more than that that we can prove experimentally, empirically, by measuring blood pressure and stress hormones and heart rate and subjective uh, reports of anxiety or, or depression or, or any of these measures, such that if you know, we, could, we could recommend, say, you know, one hour of meditation every day, six days a week, will cause the following percentage of people to have these improved health uh, measures, something like that. That would be a move from a subjective truth to an objective truth. And in science, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get at something that it's not just internal to me. You can see it. You can measure it. I can measure it. This other lab over there can test it. And we can have open uh, disputation and debate about it because sometimes the, uh, it gets kind of messy, particularly in the social sciences, uh, about what's true. Uh, but that's okay. why we have to have open dialogue. Fantastic. Great. And we'll hear more about that in a moment. Um, Hillary, I will turn to you. Um, will you let us know, please, uh, from, your from your perspective, are all forms of relativism a mistake? Well, thank you. Uh, well, some forms of relativism are a mistake. But I want to argue that an awareness of the importance of perspective is a primary lesson for us of the last hundred years. Now, 
Belief in objective truth is very beguiling. It gives us the sense of progress, knowing where we are. But I would argue that over the last century, we have uncovered that it's an illusion. And in the current climate, a dangerous illusion at that. Now, Stephen Hawking, towards the end of A Brief History in Time, his account of the contemporary scientific story of the universe, puts forward the idea that maybe just round the corner there's a grand unified theory which would account for everything. And in it he uses, in his words, as, as this might enable us to see into the mind of God. Of course, it's a rhetorical move on his part. He didn't believe in God. And, and, but what he's trying to say is to express, as it were, the fantasy of objective truth, that we can arrive, we get there, and we know how things are. Now, towards the end of his life, he moved away from that in favour of a model theoretic account in which different physics accounts of the world are seen as models, and we try and improve those models and we try and get them to be better, but there isn't a correct one, or at least um, we can't assume that there would be a correct one. And... uh, in, that, in holding that view, he was in good company. I mean, Heisenberg took a similar sort of view when, when uh, he founded quantum mechanics uh, and, and most of contemporary science with it uh, back in the uh, 20s. And uh, uh, Hawking, in taking this outlook, is really, I would argue, at the end of an arc in the 20th century in which there's gradually seen to be an uncovery of evidence for the importance of perspective. And, um, you know, it started with um, maybe Froese's Golden Bough and listing uh, belief systems across the world and that becoming apparent that there couldn't really be one that was true uh, to it invading our thoughts about morality and fundamentally the idea that language changes the way that we understand the world so that now we see ourselves as when we have an outlook as that outlook is a function of history, culture, uh, our language, and of course, a function of the fact that we're human. You know, we think in a human way. A bat would not think as we do. So the idea that you know these, this perspective, which has all of these constraints, can somehow reach through and find out how reality is absolutely, uh, it seems to me to be implausible. Now, it doesn't mean, when we conclude that, that therefore anything goes that we can adopt a sort of, well, I can just come up with any old theory and, uh, and propound that as being true. Because we have to get our accounts of the world to work for us. And we, we can test those theories, not by somehow uncovering nuggets of facts, but we test them by seeing whether if we operate according to that, they work or not. And this final thought I'd like to make, which is one which I think is frequently mis- m- misunderstood, which is that being aware of the importance of perspective and there being different perspectives on the world and there not being an ultimate one doesn't mean we can't argue for and challenge fundamentally those views that we think are misguided or indeed abhorrent. All it means is we can't simply respond to them by saying, I'm right and you're wrong. Instead, we have to use those rather unfashionable strategies of the Enlightenment, empiricism and rationalism to point to what it is about our perspective that has things going for it and why it is valuable. And, um, uh, and in that way, 
I think we've got uh, the potential to be in a better space in future where we respect each other's perspectives, but at the same time are tied to looking very closely at whether they work or not. Great. Thank you so much, Hillary. And finally, Jennifer, um, would you please let us know whether all forms of relativism are a mistake? Let me start by saying that I assume that I was invited to participate in this conversation because I'm a historian, not a philosopher, though I'm a historian who focuses on the history of philosophy. And by that historical view has shown me how relativism is a pretty baggy word that's been enlisted to use to mean all sorts of things, um, some totally in consonant. So I do think that the question itself might encourage us to ask for a little bit more, more precision. Most often when relativism is used, it's used as an epithet, it's used as a fighting word, but that itself, it's not quite clear what it is that person who is enlisting the word necessarily means by it. But if I, so if I take a historical view and I sort of cut through the chaos and the imprecision around the word, um, I, and then I also think about other words that have been used as synonyms for it. So pragmatism, pluralism, perspectivalism, anti-foundationalism, and go on and on. Then I'm pressed, if I'm pressed to answer, then the answer is no. Um, is it, is it bad, you know, uh, what was the, um, is all, are all forms of relativism bad or a mistake? The answer then from a historical point of view is absolutely not. Um, now, if you, by, by relativism, if you mean the absurd notion that two, that, that, that you can have um, two competing notions of the good life and both are equally good, um, and then just kind of shrug your shoulders and just let it be, almost nobody really makes that kind of a claim. Again, that's a, that's a caricature of a relativist position. So what I would, say, would invite us to do to the degree that it's possible in the next 45 minutes is to think more historically about how these terms relativism, realism um, have been used and, to, and, and what kind of work it, they've been used to do. So if we wanna look for examples of the ways in something we might be called relativism have, are not a mistake, or certainly they, they, they point to a, 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 a view of the world that my guess is most of us and most of our listeners would wanna listen or, or live in, then we could go back to someone like a Michel Montan, um, who's often considered the first modern relativist, um, who was responding to reports from the New World about the indigenous people that lived in the New World. And he was using what were described as their, 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 the incivility of these indigenous people as a way for him to rec uh, uh, reckon with the incivility in his own 16th century French culture. And so he makes, if you will, a relativist move by saying we need to understand these in their particular context. What was he pushing towards? He was pushing towards tolerance. And I think that's a general good that many of us probably in, in and around the Zoom room think is, not a, is something that we should be striving for. And again, I can just flash forward the frame and see other examples when other thinkers are making that kind of relativist move with an impulse towards tolerance, with an impulse towards epistemic humility, which does not have to need, lead to nihilism or some form of radical agnosticism, but rather encourages 
openness, curiosity, a recognition of difference, and a desire to seek something that we might call intersubjective agreement rather than um, um, objective truth. Great. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Um, theoretically speaking, it seems to me that there are two big issues. One is whether there is an objective reality out there. And the second is whether we can know it. Right? If so, can we know it? Um, so is there a truth and do we have access to it such that we can make truth claims about that truth? Um, one way we might get at both of these questions as this debate is structured is to ask, uh, does language describe reality? Um, and we'll start with Hillary, if you would uh, hop in for us and then we can have folks respond to you. Does language describe reality? Well. You know, I, I'm a non-realist, so I, I don't think that language does describe reality. It enables us and helps us to intervene, and um, it has lots of different strategies, as it were, to, to, to do that. But I don't think we are able to reach out and, and touch how reality is. Maybe just a little sort of practical example of that. I, when I've been in debates with... Um, uh, realists, they've sometimes used this in reverse, as it were, to, to show the obvious uh, value of realism. And, and when I was uh, in a conversation with John Searle, he did this, he held, he held up his hand, yes, you can see my hand, and he said, well, Hillary, you know, this is a hand, isn't it? And that's a thumb, and it, that touches the finger, and, and, and that, that's, that's the fact of the matter. Well, well, <clears throat> that's sort of true in a way in, in, uh, in, um, in English, in a certain sort of idiom, but even within English, there are many other ways we can, we can hold that. We could say um, it's a, a, a part of an organism. We could say it's a, a particular sort of surface. We could say it's a gesture. Uh, we could say it's an example in a conversation. Um, we could say it's a collection of atoms and so forth. So there's any number of ways we can, we can describe whatever it, it is here. And uh, really somehow imagine that all of those somehow point to some transcendental thing behind all of those things. But uh, I don't think that's right. And we can't get at the transcendental thing anyway. And, and um, so I, I think that we have to conclude that we need an alternative account of language. And um, the account that I, I would propose is that language closes the openness of the world, that somehow there's, a, there's, there's many different ways we can close this, and our language enables us to do that. And uh, when we close it in a particular way, we can employ that. So if we close it as a hand, we can, part it, we can provide a, I don't know, a story about all of the different sizes of hand, and we can argue, say, is this a big hand, a small hand, you know, whatever. If we close it as a gesture, we can put it in the context of a science of gestures. If we put it in the context of um, you know, uh, organic material, we could have it in the context of science. Each of these are different frameworks. And those frameworks enable us to do different things. And it's not as if this is a hand and that's it. Mm -hmm. All right, let's, let's, let's throw this down to Michael. Um, how, are you, how are you feeling right now? The, the, so is it, <laughs> is it the case that, for example, like scientific language, for example, um, is one way of closing the openness of the world and say phenomenological language is another, experiential language is another. Are you, are you comfortable with that account of things? Yeah, it's an interesting use of words. The language yourself 
that you're using, Hillary, uh, is kind of closing your own set of arguments that uh, I'm trying to see how I would work around that. Let's let's step back for a second and think, well, all we have are our words to convey our thoughts. There's no such thing as mind reading. I don't know what you're thinking. So I only have your words and you have my words. And so clear communication is crucial that we define exactly what we're talking about. So if we're talking about my hand as a gesture, obviously that's different than uh, naming the anatomical parts of my hand, something like that. Uh, clearly that they're, they're both true, it just depends on, uh, on the context. Uh, you mentioned uh, Stephen Hawking and I would add Leonard Malad now in their book, um, uh, the Grand Design introduced this idea of model-dependent realism. And in my uh, book that followed just after that, The Believing Brain, I pushed that idea to the belief-dependent belief realism to the extent that what we're thinking about uh, or the model we're using or the theory is very much going to influence how we perceive that reality. But the reality still exists. I mean, the, the bat is going to see the microphone I'm holding here in a very different way than I will. Whatever he's, the bat sees in its visual cortex or its, its uh, echolocation cortex is going to be very different than mine. But if it flies to the mic, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dodge around it because it knows it's there. There's actually a physical object there. Whatever it would call it, because it doesn't have language, obviously is species dependent. You know, so, but, but the rub is uh, where you can't quite make out what you're looking at. So I'll, I'll use Jennifer as an uh, example of using history here. Um, you know, Galileo is often championed by historians of science as, as having gotten it right, the Copernican. Uh, model, but he was wrong about Saturn. Uh, he thought Saturn was three objects, one large object and two small moons, or maybe it was three planets. Uh, and it was, it, it looked different at different times of the year and he couldn't quite make out what he was looking at. And he, and he concluded it's three objects. It's one planet and two big moons. The reason he got it wrong was because a, his data was degraded. He had a crummy little telescope and it's kind of fuzzy. And two, there was no theory of planetary rings. So he had nothing to graft onto the blurry object that, well, those are maybe rings or maybe they're, they're moons. There was no idea of rings. Nobody knew about rings. So it's in that area, um, Hillary, I think, where in, say, quantum physics, trying to tie it to general relativity or what we can't quite make out what's going on. And maybe there's just unknown unknowns. They're just things we can't even think of. And in 500 years from now, people go, oh, that explains this, whatever it is. Just like we look back and go, oh, of course, Galileo got it wrong. He didn't know about rings. Now we know about rings, right? So there, but there's still a way to get at the truth because there really are planetary rings. We really have discovered those and nobody's confused about that anymore. No one's debating it. No one's making epistemological arguments about planetary rings. It's just a given. Uh, but it's on the margins, those shadowlands between what uh, we know and don't know, where we uh, the language fills it in. I think the example you gave is interesting, and indeed this is it does sort of go to the heart heart of the matter. Uh, I think that we can refine our perspectives within uh, by by observing the world. It's just that our observing of the world is from within the context of that perspective. So it's somehow always um, and, uh, mediated through our, our language and our sensation. I, I think that in the case of the rings, what is going on there is that, uh, yes, there were, by getting better um, telescopes, uh, we could conclude, oh, actually, these aren't separate objects. We think there's something else going on there. And that's using the experience of looking at the world. But 
that doesn't mean to say we've reached through to objective reality. Um, it, it, you say, well, we know there are rings. Actually, if we were actually at Saturn and you were in one of those rings, it wouldn't feel like a ring at all. It would be a whole mm. series of bits of ice uh, floating around the side of you and you would probably not, not identify them as rings. The rings is a way of holding that stuff, which enables us to mm. talk about it. But there are lots of other ways of, of talking about it. And we uh, are choosing in each case what we think is the right theoretical frame in order to be able to intervene effectively, given our attempts to uh, explore it and test it by going and looking at the world. But we don't have to imagine that we arrive uh, because that makes it imagine that we us think that there is a correct way when in fact, no, there are ever more refined but different ways of holding things, each of which has potential and each of which can be refined. Jennifer, let me ask you to hop in here, if you would. Um, do you, what's, what's, what's happening from your perspective? Um, what, how, how, uh, how are both uh, Hillary and Michael describing the relationship between language and reality and making claims about one or the other? And uh, do, do, you have a, do you have a dog in this fight? The phrase that came to mind was the gymnastic use of philosophy. Uh, James, William James used this philosophy, uh, this this phrase, basically to kind of clear a space for pragmatism. Where, according to James, he said so many of our philosophical debates are gymnastic, insofar as they're like limbering up, they're stretching out. So they're like, how many fingers am I holding up? We can do that. Um, we can have that kind of conversation. I tend to refer to it as the dental cleaning version um, um, of, of philosophy, you know, kind of getting in and getting out some of the crud from our thinking. It's important to do, but that's not necessarily where the huge stakes of these, these questions are. So um, again, I'm not minimizing the questions, but what's interesting for me as a historian is to go historically and listen in to when these debates are not merely gymnastic, but there's a real sense of something hugely urgent on, on the line. Historically, this is an important question when we're clear what the stakes of it are. Mm -hmm. and so, let's, so let's head there. This is, this is really helpful. Let's head there. Let's, so we are, this, this kind of heads us into our next, um, our next place. And, and Jennifer, we can head right back to you if you'd like. Um, we're in an era of, uh, many of us are living in the US. Um, we've got data manipulation, alternative facts, abject lying, right, in the context that many of us inhabit. Um, is it politically dangerous to abandon realism, right? Whether or whatever, whatever we wanna say ontologically, if we don't wanna make ontological claims, if we do, right? Um, do we need even just for political expediency to hang on to some notion of objective truth? Okay, now you've now you've now you've moved us out of the gymnasium <laughs> into the um, gladiatorial. I don't know into the herge, the herge, the the huge urgency of our long now. Um, and so, yeah, you've moved us right into the domain domain then of what are some of the stakes for this, and we're we're watching them um, uh, of these kinds of conversations, and we're watching them in real time. Um, for your viewers, um, I'm in the, the, the Midwest, I'm in Wisconsin, which was uh, the heart, one of the real battlegrounds of the last presidential election. Um, but if there's anything that's told us the need to suss out uh, what's real and what's fake um, and what's false, if there's something like alternative facts, or if we can go the route of Rudy Giuliani, uh, Donald Trump's good friend and lawyer that um, facts aren't facts, 
And yet, I think the word realism, it has a kind of quaintness to it um, that I don't think latching on to realism as a counter move to fake news or alternative facts. Because again, if we look at how realism as a term has been used, it is often used um, in a very, um, um, in a way, it, it really in a kind of clashing will to power, if you will. Um, it's been a it's been a word used to uh, for mastery um, over one's opponents rather than illuminating something that we might call objective reality. When realism gets invoked in political discourse, it is what I, William James would call a magic word. It works by obfuscating. It works by asserting power. Um, it works by oftentimes making a, turning the oppo an, a, an opposing view into something like a trope. And I think ultimately it's kind of, um, it can be very pernicious. Great, Michael, can I, can I turn this over to you? So whether or not we're holding yeah. on to the idea, the, the, the term realism, do we need to hold on to an, an absolute objective out there, non-perspectival truth um, for the sake yeah. of uh, political viability, yeah. like just to live, just to yeah. exist. Yeah, we do. I'll give you one word answer. QAnon. Yeah. QAnon, right? I mean, uh, a poll earlier this week on Monday, Pew, uh, found that a third of self-reported Republicans believe this conspiracy theory. Two-thirds still accept the big lie that the election was rigged. Now, what can it possibly mean to say, I believe the QAnon conspiracy? I mean, what is it? It's a conspiracy theory that says there is a, um, a satanic cabal of pedophiles led by Hillary Clinton. It's a bunch of old uh, conspiracy theories wrapped up into one. Now, these people can't be that dumb to believe something so ridiculous, except for the young man who went to the Comet Pizzeria, uh, Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. with a gun to break up the pedophile ring, because that's what you would do if you thought there was this crime going on and the police wouldn't do anything about it. So you go to you know, take justice into your own hands. But people like Ted Cruz, you know, he's not stupid. Uh, I don't particularly like him or his politics, but he's not stupid. He can't possibly believe this conspiracy theory. Nobody can possibly believe this, but they say they believe it. So what do they, what does it mean to say, I believe something here? I think it's more of a tribal loyalty, you know, a sense that, that kind of a virtue signaling. I am so loyal, uh, a Democrat, a Republican, a conservative that I'm willing to vocally say publicly, I believe this ridiculous theory. So uh, the only response to that is to really is, but is it true? Is there actually a ring of you know, satanic pedophiles? No, there aren't. Now, normally what happens in these tribal politics is that when somebody high up in, on your, in your tribe says, no, that's not true, and then everybody falls into place. I figured that's what would happen when A.G. Barr said, no fraud. When Mike Pence said, you know, no fraud. Uh, you know, when even Mitch McConnell said, I'm off the wagon of this craziness. I thought, well, that'll do it for sure. But it didn't. So I'm really worried that this is something different that we've never got, we've never experienced before, even that kind of subjective reality. So, I mean, as I said at the outset, I think it's just a mistake to imagine that we need objective truth in order to react to views which we disagree with or find abhorrent. And not only do I think it's, a, uh, do we not uh, uh, need objective truth, it doesn't work. 
You don't convince people by saying, I'm right. We all know that. Everybody thinks that they're right. And the fact that everybody thinks that they're right is surely an indication that there's something wrong with the very idea. And, uh, and uh, the way that we convince people who hold views that we object to is we show them what it is about that view that is objectionable. And we show them by carrying through the logical consequences of what they said and by pointing to things in the world that they have to respond to. But we don't have to back that by a, um, uh, actually, I think a, an almost theological notion that there is a sort of ultimate truth which was, proves that we're right. Because all of us have a perspective and all of those perspectives have some weaknesses as well as strengths. And there's just one additional thing I, I'd like to add to this, and this is to Jennifer, just so I don't... You know, I think it cuts both ways. So, uh, Jennifer, you, you've made a strong case in, in, in favour of recognising the value of relativism. But my question to you is, well, do you think that's true? Do you believe your position? Do you think you're right? And I don't think it's gymnastics to ask you to try and identify that and explain, well, how is it that you can hold on to a view which you believe to be the case, but um, at the same time, question the uh, idea of there being an ultimate uh, truth. And so I think that we do have to explore this. And I, I put my proposal on, which is that we stick to those rather powerful strategies of empiricism and rationalism, but we abandon the theological notion that there is some ultimate truth that our uh, language and our ways of going about things can somehow reach through to and capture, while instead, to use your you know, pragmatist uh, uh, parallel, what's going on is we use our stories in order to be able to get things to happen that we like, and we test them against whether they work, but not by imagining that we're right. Who feels happy jumping in right now? Because Hillary, I'd, I'd like to ask. Well, I was just going to ask Hillary a question. What would you say to a Trump supporter who said the election was stolen? My guy won. Well, I would say what I would hope you would say, which is, well, I need some evidence. And if you think this is the case, where do you think it's the case? Uh, let's let's look at it uh, carefully and uh, and uh, and identify uh, what we think uh, might might be going on here. And you, it's the the there's no shortcut. You can't get rid of people. Indeed, I think one of the uh, one of the reasons that the the American situation is in such dire states is bit straits is because on the on as it were the the counter to Trump, there's an attempt just to try and say, oh well, this is just nonsense. While instead you well, have to get in there and you have to get in there and well, no, no. argue argue the hard work of why it is not right and what are the consequences are and and how it would work and uh, you know the the QAnon story I have puzzled over this and the way that you described QAnon doesn't make it possible that anybody could possibly agree to it so actually I think there's a bit of um, uh, playfulness going on there in your account which is somehow painting QAnon as being obviously absurd in order to say how dangerous it is. While instead, I think you want to get in there into the detail of what the people who hold this view actually think and challenge those individual things and, and uh, in the hard work of demonstrating their failure and their weakness. 
Well, that, yeah, Jennifer, yeah, go ahead. Um, I wanted to jump in here because um, on, on this issue, um, I shouldn't assume that, that many of us can, uh, around the Zoom room can agree that QAnon is really very problematic. But I wondered if there was some slippage here, or and I'm and maybe you're not making it, Michael. But we've certainly seen this argument that what we're living in is the world that postmodernism wrought. You know, in other words, mm -hmm. that somehow there's some straight shot from Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida mm -hmm. to <laughs> Kellyanne Conway and Donald Trump yeah. and right. QAnon. And the answer to that and is is that it's absurd. Were that philosophy in the academy to have that kind of larger influence, you know, we, I'd be thrilled, but that this is not it. But what you are seeing with that kind of an argument is one that's been made time and time again, and it didn't start with the postmodernists, it starts much earlier, which is about whether one needs objective truth. Um, that is to say, or, or maybe another way of putting at it is what are, what's the, philosophical, pardon me, the political outcomes of certain philosophical positions or, or, or dispositions. And what I would simply say is that um, if I, my guess is if you were to ask QAnon, people who subscribe to QAnon, they should exhibit none of the habits of mind that you would associate with a relativist, um, a perspectivalist. Mm -hmm. A, pra a mm. pragmatist, a pluralist. So the the linkage between, ra rather, I think these are probably people that have a very firm commitment to an idea of objective truth, Absolutely. of a priori's, of a historical right and wrong, and they're very certain of theirs. Mm. So that's why I, I simply wanted to say that there is something that a, a, what we might call a relativist position can nudge us towards, and that's epistemic hu humility, which may mean that we would be able to counter QAnon, not by showing the believers how wrong they are, because again, I think people are conservative by nature and they wanna believe what they wanna believe even when there's evidence to the contrary, but rather to try to understand what that what that passional nature is that is drawing them to that, that belief. I think the foundation for conversation, which then can yield something that we might call deliberative democracy, which might then call something that is, is can, uh, can yield, yield an utter death blow to the kind of authoritarianism we're seeing, is going to come much more likely from habits of mind that we may go so far as to call skepticism. Um, I prefer the term epistemic humility, but it's one that, that um, is constantly asking for precision, context, recognizing the importance of perspective. Yeah, I would agree with that to a certain extent, if it's all right, if I uh, yeah. continue yeah. here. Um, yeah, of course, they, uh, you ask a QAnon, and I have, you know, they don't say, well, I'm a relativist and all truths are equal and this is mine. No, you know, they go, oh, well, everybody knows it was stolen. I mean, Trump told you and he, and, and Look, Giuliani has these videos that they show of the people, you know, uh, fiddling around with those boxes of votes. And look, there's there, there was some thrown down the river. And oh, you know, th yes, they have evidence uh, that, that they consider evidence. Um, so really, it comes down, you know, Hillary said the hard work. Well, the hard work was done in the courts where you can't just say a lot of people are saying it was rigged. You have to actually present evidence or else the, the judge just throws you out. And that's what happened over 60 times to Trump's team. In the past, we've had this norm of truth 
the belief in truth for a liberal democracy to work. Even though pretty much everyone who's ever lost election probably thinks, well, there was some shenanigans going on there in Ohio and Iowa, Pennsylvania, whatever. But they always just say, you know what? Okay, I agree. I lost, you know, and they call the other team and say, I can see that that has always happened until now. And uh, so this is what I'm worried about, that for a democracy to work, we have to assume there's an objective truth to get to. Even if it's not perfect, at least the courts can sort it out. Because if um, if we can't assume that elections are fair, by which I mean there's an actual true outcome, even though there's always going to be a, you know a, you know a couple of people that were dead that voted or whatever, that's always the case, but not mass enough to to make any difference. And and so the courts at some point say uh, you know if if you don't have the evidence, then you know you're out uh, onto the next case and. You know, that's what we saw here. And 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 unfortunately, it, we didn't have what we've always had, which is a concession and we move on. And that, so that's what I'm worried about there. One of the um, things, yeah, things rather fascinating about the way the court systems w works in, in a jury trial is that we embed the idea that there are alternative perspectives in the prosecution and the defense. And unlike the sort of French system, we don't assume that the court uncovers the truth. We just go for mm -hmm. the most likely story. Now, I think that, and I like to endorse Jennifer's sense of epistemic humility in this respect. I think we can argue strongly for our view, which we think has account accounted for as much of the evidence as possible. But I don't think we want to make the additional and key step of saying that we have somehow finally answered it. Um, and having the uh, humility to recognize that all of us have a perspective. And you did raise, incidentally, Michael, just as an aside, of how, how would I do that in the context of my own account? And I, I, do, yeah. I, do, I have thought about that very carefully. In fact, my first book was about self-reference. Um, so uh, I think that we do all have to somehow account for and change our relationship to our outlook and recognize that we haven't arrived. They are temporary ways of trying to make sense of the world and we try to use as much evidence as possible for it, but we should not try and then say, we have got the only version and everything else is wrong because that is the, that is the route to confrontation. And uh, in that sense, as I say, I, I entirely agree with the points that Jennifer made. Let me just throw out, thank you all so much. Let me throw out a little, one last little turn. Um, let's take take us out of the, the, the ring a little bit and back into the gymnasium for just, just a moment. Um, so that, because I'd like to get back to the example that, um, to take all of this and get back to the example that Michael first threw out, which is to say uh, the, um, uh, the creation of the earth, or the, the emergence of the earth 4.6 billion years ago versus a, a young earth creationist. Um, Michael has just said, for democracy to work, we have to assume there's an objective truth out there. We have to assume there's an objective truth out there, which is a scientific model, in, at least in, in, in Michael's uh, um, uh, view, right? That this is a, a, a applying a kind of scientific understanding of a progressive uh, reach towards an objective truth. Um, Hillary has called that view actually theological. 
instead of scientific, right? Um, and I know that Jennifer's work on Nietzsche can show quite beautifully uh, how we get from the theological to the scientific uh, in, the, in the context of Western intellectual history. Um, so I'm thinking about Heisenberg, I'm thinking about um, the impossibility of determining a particle's position and momentum at the same time. Western science uncovering its own perspectivalism, saying, oh my goodness, if you throw uh, you know, a wave question at this light, it's a wave. If you throw a position, a particle question at this uh, light, it's a, it's a particle. Um, Heisenberg himself says, objective reality seems to have evaporated here. Right. Um, that having been said, quantum physics itself does not operate according to that kind of understanding of reality, right? It, 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 it operates according to a, a more kind of conventional modernist understanding of reality out there. Um, are we able even to like live without some sort of notion of objective reality? Like how do we, how do you, what do you call the way of doing um, science doing investigation doing the work of democracy without realism like what does it look like are there promising models out there um how do we how do we understand the difference between for example the 4.6 billion year old earth and the and young earth creationism um and 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 michael i'll, I'll head back to you if that's okay to this uh, idea of the election itself, we, we do kind of maybe call it a useful fiction, like, you know, money is a useful fiction. It's not really worth anything because there's no gold backing it. It's by fiat or, you know, democracy itself is kind of a useful fiction. It's just something we all assume and have faith in, if you will, or confidence that it works until it doesn't. And then, you know, all hell breaks loose. So as we saw on January 6th. Uh, and so, you know, I think we do have to assume that a fair election can be held and a winner can be determined, even if there's always going to be a little fuzzy, you know, not sure about that district right there or that voting precinct. But but for, for, for the most part, it works. Without that, you know, there's no democracy. And, uh, uh, it, you know, it's not quite the same as science, but it, it, what's behind it is that we can get at the actual winner of the election. And if we can't, we're lost democratically. Jennifer, where are you on this? We're, we're enacting the perspectival nature of things because I heard your question. I, I mean, I fixated on different parts of your question. Yes, so I would yeah. lift up uh, different things. Um, the, the, what Michael's saying is now having me um, think about revising how I might have initially answered yours. So I guess a couple of things. One is, um, you know, Nietzsche basically said that our faith in science is just another form of monism. Hence, I think, perhaps what Hillary means by a theological view that even in, in a, but I, I don't want to speak for, for, for Hillary, but also I will speak for Nietzsche, um, having spent a lot of time with him um, channeling his ghost. But that was what Nietzsche said was that, um, that, 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 that the, the fetishization of science out of the enlightenment, um, even in the ways that we think of it as deeply secular, he said was another form of piety to a monism, to one absolute truth. And Nietzsche said that the, the that nihilism actually wasn't the opposite of belief. It was just another form of monism, right? So if you can't, if God is dead, if you believe that God is dead, then if the natural consequence of that is to think, well, then there's nothing, you're just a monist. Whereas what Nietzsche sought to do was to open up radical 
possible radical possibility. So I, I the, there was just um, I got kind of fixated on um, what might might have been confusing to some listeners is how can someone refer to something stoutly secular as a, a form of theism and just explain that there's a um, there's a there's an interesting and 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 vibrant history with that um, that sort of a claim and it's one that I find personally very very persuasive as well, which is that you cannot have truth unless it's commitment to an extra human truth. And what I think is interesting is the long line of thinkers who have said, let's hold on to a notion of truth, but let's recognize that truth is something that human beings navigate with one another as they try to make sense of themselves and they try to make sense of their world. Um, all of you are fantastic. We are nearing the end of our time. So I would just like to thank you all so much for this work and for your time, for your clarity um, and for your, 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 just, your, your brilliance, really. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.